Yeah, bigger cheer, bigger cheer. It's Paul. I'm going to say something. I am so thankful that we have this man to lead this church. I wasn't planning on doing this. I really do. I just really think we are so blessed to have this man here. He is such a gift from God to us. And we're so excited about what you're going to preach now. No, no pressure. No pressure. Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you, Abby. I, did, you know, I didn't ask her to do that. You may think that I did, but no, no, I, I promise I didn't. Brilliant. So good to uh, be with you. Let me just reinforce, um, this week we are praying. We're praying on Wednesday evening. We're praying on Thursday lunchtime. These are great opportunities for you to lay hold of God personally. I believe that when we pray, my Father in heaven hears and my Father in heaven responds to my request. It's a- in some ways, it's absolutely ridiculous, but it's true. And it says it time after time after time in the Bible. I, I just want to encourage you, use Wednesday and Thursday as real opportunities to get hold of God in prayer. If you're going after stuff, and I know many of you are from God, you're looking for breakthrough in an area, or you're looking for provision, or you're looking to see a change in your work situation, why don't you miss a meal on Wednesday or Thursday and say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to use that time to pray. Or, even greater personal cost, you could turn off social media. And every time you are reminded to check Twitter or Facebook, you think, I'm going to use that time to pray instead. I mean, imagine the hours of prayer you would get done on the Wednesday or Thursday if you just decided to do that. I just want to encourage you. Use those days to really lay hold of God and then come and gather with family as we seek God for his blessing for this church in the different venues that God has called us to. I love baptisms. They are great fun. Um, It is brilliant to hear the stories of changed lives. I'm looking forward to hearing the testimonies a little bit later um, as well. It's going to be great. But I'm also quite excited this morning because I'm uh, getting to preach this morning on the crucifixion. So with Easter Sunday next week, when someone else is going to get to talk about the resurrection... I'm going to line it all up by talking about the crucifixion today. And Paul shared a little bit earlier, didn't he? He said something about we can become over-familiar with some truths, with some things. It's like we've heard them before and for many of us we, we know the story of the crucifixion. We've, we've, we've heard it before, we've, we've read it many, many times. But my real prayer is this morning that as we look at this whole subject, as we follow through in Matthew 27 and look at it, that it will come with real freshness, that we really will see who Jesus is. We will see who he is. We will see what he came to do. And we will be able to answer that question, why did Jesus die? Why did he go through a horrendous crucifixion? What was the big plan? What was it all about? So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Matthew 27 Um, If you haven't, don't worry, um, the words will come up on the screen behind me. I'm just going to pray and then we're going to dive in and uh, uh, see what it has to say. Lord, I thank you that you are here. I thank you, God, you are dwelling with your people right now. You're here. And I just ask you, would you please enable me to speak with 
real boldness and clarity. And I ask you, old truths that we know so well will come with a real freshness, a revelation. I pray for those of us that have never really heard this stuff before. We've never given any time to considering it. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to um, uh, us profoundly and deeply. Um, I pray you'd move our hearts, you'd stir our minds. Lord, I ask you'd be with us in this, we pray. Amen. The plan is for me to preach until about 10 past 11. So that's about 17, 18 minutes. Um, Then the children come in, so I've got to stop anyway. Okay, so uh, that's the plan. So let's just pick it up. What I want to do is I want to spend a bit of time looking at Matthew 27. We're going to do about 30 verses there. I'm going to read them out, uh, explain a few bits and pieces. um, And then I just want to answer two questions. Um, Who is Jesus and why did he die? And that has particular relevance for those being baptised today. But actually it's a good question for any of us to be aware of and to think about. Now, before we dive in and start reading at verse 27, I just want to give you a little bit of the background. Jesus has been arrested by the authorities and he's received a farce of a trial. It was, it was ridiculous. He wasn't, he wasn't guilty of anything that they accused him of. In spite of that, Pilate, the Roman uh, governor, condemns him to death and then he undergoes a Roman flogging, which is absolutely brutal and at some, in some cases um, would kill a person anyway. So let's pick it up in Matthew 27 verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That would have been um, probably anything up to 600 men They would have been non-Jewish soldiers, so the opportunity to get a supposed Jewish king in front of them would have been an opportunity too good to miss. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. It was probably a soldier's cape. They put, um, they and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, pretending that it was a scepter, like a king would have. And taking it in turns, they knelt before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe They put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man from Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Jesus would have been walking out the city with the crossbeam on his back. But after going through a Roman flogging and the other stuff that had gone on, it's, it's, it's supposed that he did not have the energy to carry on anymore. And the place of crucifixion was always outside of the city, positioned near a main road where lots would see. And this man, Simon, I think was coming in as Jesus and this entourage are going out. And Simon is forced to carry this crossbeam for Jesus. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, 
they offered wine they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall but when he tasted it he would not drink it this was probably um, a form of pain relief to dull his senses but Jesus wanted to experience the full horror of the cross for us And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. A squad of soldiers guarded Jesus to make sure that he died. To make sure that he wasn't stolen away before he died or anything else happened. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Up to this point, you may look at this account and think that Jesus is hopeless. I've already said that he was innocent of any charges brought against him. So is this just a horrendous miscarriage of justice? But as we move into the next 9-10 verses, we start to get a glimpse that maybe there is a fuller purpose than the one we've originally seen here. Maybe there is something going on behind the scenes that... Just a cursory glance, we wouldn't necessarily pick up. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So that is from midday through till 3 p.m. in the afternoon. This is the Middle East. This is hot, hot, hot sunny weather. I mean, if that happened in Hastings on a January afternoon, and sometimes doesn't it feel like darkness has come early, you know? The mist descends, it's all cloudy, it's like dark. Now, this, this is the Middle East. And what goes from bright sunshine to pitch blackness. And some commentators really get into the detail of saying, well, how did it happen? Maybe there was an eclipse or something like that happened. I don't know. But God made it dark. It was dark for three hours when it had been bright sunshine before. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This wasn't a cry because of the physical pain 
or because of the emotional anguish. This was a cry because of what was happening between him and his father. And we catch a glimpse of a greater purpose here as Jesus carries the sin of the world on his shoulders as he is hung up there on the cross. And some bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it up to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. It's not surprising they were expecting something supernatural to happen. They've just experienced three hours of darkness at noonday. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus chose when he was going to die. And he cries out in a loud voice. And Matthew doesn't record what what he said, but John does. He says, it is finished. That he wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about his purpose, the reason he had been born, the reason he had lived, the very reason why he was hanging on the cross right now. It is finished. And then we get a whole number of supernatural events that could be quite hard for us to get our heads around. The first one is this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a four inch thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem from the surrounding court. And it was ripped. It wasn't someone with a pair of scissors starting at the bottom and trying to work their way up. This was ripped from heaven down to earth. This was a God event. This was a God doing something that happened at exactly the same time that Jesus gave up his life. Why? Because God has opened a new way for men and women to know God. No longer sacrifices and temple worship and stuff like that, but something of what was going on on the cross was dramatically changing the way the human race was going to be able to interact with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That was the first thing that went on. The second thing was this, and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. There was an earthquake. Jesus yielded up his spirit, an earthquake occurs. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I mean, that must have been freaky. I mean, I don't know about you. Can you imagine it? You just go shopping in Hastings. And someone who's died centuries before is walking around. I mean, that in reality is what is going on. I mean, this, depending on what your worldview is, this, this could be quite hard to comprehend. But this supernatural activity was all going on at the point where Jesus gave up his life. And then I think probably, I mean, the supernatural stuff is interesting, but I think this is the most interesting bit. 
when the centurion and those who were with him, so that would have been the guard, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is a Roman soldier with no religious background, with, with no interest in Christianity. He's the one making sure that Jesus dies painfully and dies. But the confession from his mouth is surely this is the Son of God. This is a moving, challenging account It's one thing to come at Christmas and hear about the birth of Jesus and that's nice and angels turning up and all of that. It's another thing to look at the end of his earthly life and his death. And as you're sat here now, you can think, well, what what on earth was that all about? As I've already said, was it just some horrendous miscarriage of justice? But I just want to answer two questions that bring all of this into focus and bring understanding to why this took place. The first thing I want to answer is this. Who is Jesus? Because actually there are references to Jesus right the way through this passage. And although a lot of it is through the mockery, actually in the mockery they are speaking profound truth about who Jesus is. The first thing we find is this. The soldiers said it in Matthew 27, 29. The charge stated it above his head where he was crucified and the religious authorities confirmed it that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of Israel. It was a title that they would have recognised. Jesus wasn't just a poor man who was dying on the cross. He was a king dying on the cross. The second thing that we notice that again often through the mockery comes out is Jesus is not just a king, but he is the Son of God. The robbers on his right and left, those who passed by in Matthew 27 verse 40, again the religious leaders in their mockery, and the Roman centurion at the end makes this amazing claim, surely he is the Son of God. You see, Matthew's gospel is all about revealing who Jesus is. And he isn't just a good man. Jesus is so much more than just a good man. He isn't a con artist and put all of this together just to fool people. He's not a fictional character either. He is God. He is the King of Kings. It's what he claimed about himself It's what's revealed in his teaching. It's what was experienced through the deliverance, the healings and the miracles that he did. Jesus is both king and God and he is the one that we worship today. And as these guys are going to be baptised later, that understanding of Jesus as both King and God is absolutely critical. It is foundational for our belief. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that he is the king of kings and he is the son of God. You can't. You may do Christian type things, but at the core of our faith, what we are built upon is the fact that he is the son of God and he is the king of kings. The second reason then, why did he die? I mean, it is a horrendous way to die. 
I pick out three things from this passage that Jesus achieved. Now, by the way, if you're a Christian here today, I give you total permission with the two minutes I've got left to get quite excited. You're right? You're up for a bit of excitement. Yeah? So I can do excitement my end, but it really doesn't work very well. Actually, I just look a bit silly. But if you join join with me in a bit of excitement as well, that would be really cool as well. So the first reason why he died is for complete forgiveness. He died in order to make complete forgiveness available. Throughout his life, Jesus forgave people on the cross. He made a way for it to happen. He carried mine and your rebellion and sin so that you would not have to carry it. It is absolutely wonderful. You see, my rebellion and my sin goes with a penalty and that penalty is death. If someone else doesn't carry that for me, I have to carry it myself. Jesus died so that I wouldn't have to carry it myself. He has died so that I do not have to. In Jesus Christ, there is complete forgiveness. And the reason I put that complete in there is because some of you don't believe it is complete. Some of you think that, yeah, God forgives this stuff, but this is too big. He can never forgive this. No, complete forgiveness. Jesus did not go through that death on the cross and for it not to be totally successful when it comes to forgiveness. He died that you might be forgiven. And we're not good at forgiveness, are we? I mean, just imagine it. You think, think it through. We don't live in a world that's good at forgiveness. I'm going to be driving along the ridge in a minute, going to Bexhill. If I get caught by a policeman doing 38 mile an hour, he's going to stop me and he's going to say, sir, you were speeding and the penalty for your speeding is three points and a hundred... Three points on my license and a hundred pound fine. And it doesn't matter how much I say sorry, I have to pay the penalty because I've broken the law. I've got to. That justice demands that to be the case. We have broken God's holy law. God doesn't sweep our wrongdoing under the carpet. But he has provided someone who will pay the penalty in our place so we do not have to. That is Jesus Christ. That's why he died on the the cross. In Luke, it talks about the fact that one of the criminals next to him, even after the mockery, gets forgiven. If you were hanging on a cross, it was either for rebellion or murder. That, that was the reason. So that criminal turns to Jesus hanging on the cross and says, please forgive me. Jesus says, I forgive you. His sin is dealt with in a moment. Murder, rebellion, all dealt with. Jesus carried the whole lot. It is the same true 2,000 years later. The offer, the invitation is true for us right now. Second thing, because I'm going well over. Open access. The curtain tour we now have access to God we don't have to stand far away we can come in close when I was worshipping today I was worshipping God is here 
And it isn't that God's taken off holiness and he's not as holy anymore. The God I worship is just as holy as the one described in the Old Testament. But Jesus has dealt with my unrighteousness. So I don't have to. So I come in free. And it's true for every single one of you who turns your life to Jesus. He came. He made a difference. Did any of you watch Sports Relief on, on Friday? Yeah? I mean, it's, it's, awful. it's an awful program. It sends you up and then it sends you down. You're laughing at one minute about, you know, the England football team and how rubbish they are. And then they show you a video of children dying from malaria. And they put a little thing up and they say, text this number, pledge 20 quid and you'll make a difference. You'll save this child. And it's good. It's a good thing they're doing. It's brilliant. What Jesus did isn't like a 20-pound pledge. It wasn't easy for Jesus to do it. It's more like me getting on a plane, going to the village, offering to adopt that child, bring them back to the UK, promising to educate, love, house, feed, raise as my own because the access we get here isn't that I stand far away from God and can come but it says I get adopted as a child of God and come right into his household but sometimes we we think it's more like God just sent a text oh I'm going to save Paul from his sin there you go 20 quid but he didn't he sent his son to take Paul's place in order that Paul could be adopted and put into Jesus's place as a son or a daughter of God and then the last thing um can Paul can you let the the kids better come back in is that all right and that will make me stop (laughs) and then the last thing is just resurrection life the third thing here The third thing we see here is resurrection life. Now, you may think I'm stealing next week, and I absolutely am. I just thought it was a bit of a rubbish deal that I get the resurrection. Someone next week, no, I get the crucifixion. Someone next week gets the resurrection, so I thought I'd steal a bit of it. But but actually, those Old Testament saints, they get resurrected in a sort of temporary fashion. It's like the first fruits. It's the start of, you know, when you become a Christian, you get resurrection life. It's not that you get resurrection when you you die, your earthly life finishes, then you get resurrection life. You've got it now. It's started now. That's why as Christians we say it's about you've been born again. You have a fresh start. You've been united with Jesus Christ. Once you were plugged into this old way of life and the power source wasn't very good and it, it didn't really come up to trumps and I couldn't really live the way I wanted to, but now... I've been plugged into Christ and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in me, enabling me to live in a new way that brings glory to God. This is a revolutionary salvation and what these guys hear as they're baptised, what they are saying, what they are declaring physically is, you know what, my old life is dead, I've been joined into Jesus Christ, I've now been raised from the dead to a new life to live a new way for him. And I know it doesn't feel like it when you woke up this morning. You know, you lost an hour's sleep and you thought, why can't kings just put the time of church back an hour? And you're still sort of trying to wake up and you think, when I get that coffee out there, then you know what? It doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not. You have resurrection life. You have complete forgiveness and you have free access. And that is why we can come. 
So how do we respond? How do we respond to this wonderful salvation when we see what it costs Christ? How do we respond? Well, I think the first thing is we, church, don't we worship? We worship. The soldiers may have knelt down in mockery. I kneel down in worship because he's worthy. Maybe the response is holiness. If it costs Christ so much to die for me, shouldn't I um, live a life in response that is worthy to him in some measure? Maybe for others of you, it's baptism. You're a Christian, but you have not yet been baptised. It's a key step for you. Be baptised. It's a public demonstration of what Christ has done for you. And for those of you that don't know Christ, what is the response to the crucifixion story? What is the response for you? Well, I'd encourage you to consider it more. Think more about what you've heard, what we've sung about, what you're going to see in a moment's time when the guys are being baptised. Maybe explore more. Maybe Paul, who was hosting the meeting, Come and find him at the end and say, what is it to follow Jesus? Why don't we stand on our feet? I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you that you were willing to die for us. I want to thank you that you are the Son of God and you are the King of Kings. I want to thank you that in you is complete forgiveness. In you is free access. Lord, in in you we... I've forgotten what was my last point. Resurrection life, that's good and it's really part of me. And I thank you for the resurrection life that we've got. Oh Lord God, we love to worship you. We love to glorify your name. Amen. If you've got children in tots, please can you go and collect them? We want them back in for the baptisms. And Jeanette, can we sing a song that is good for whatever, what we've been talking about? Is that all right? Cool. Let's go for it.